Welcome to Energy Radio. This is episode 29, and today I'm joined by Stefan Gallant of Certeris, whose mission is to create the virtual natural gas pipeline. Stefan, welcome to Energy Radio. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, this is this is fun. Uh, I hope we can have a, a chat about um, the virtual natural gas pipeline. I love that phrase, and um, so so let's let's get, let's get right into it. Um, maybe actually before we get into Centeris and and what you guys are all about, um, maybe a, a brief intro of yourself uh, first for those who are listening. You know, kind of your background, how you got into this space, what your role is, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, I met Certeris in 2017 when they were looking to expand into Ontario. Um, before that, I was working for the Timmins Economic Development Corporation. So I've got a bit of a government background, economic development, community development, um, did federal government for a while. And uh, growing up, uh, my dad had a construction company, so uh, did a lot of work that way. But I'm born and raised in Timmins and have a kind of a good grasp of Northern Ontario and our industrial players. So um there was kind of a natural fit with uh, with Terrace. Awesome. And and your role now is a, a business development role for the company? That's correct. So I manage Ontario and uh, parts of Quebec when there's an interest in Quebec as well. Excellent. Excellent. So let's talk about Certeris. I got to get that right. Certeris. And um, talk to me about, you know, kind of the origin stories of the company. Where, where does it find its roots? You know, what what kind of was its creation story what prompted it to get into business can you can you walk us through how it came to be yeah so one of our uh, one of our founding partners was in investment banking and uh, was I guess traveling through uh, South America and uh, noticed these trucks on the road and he asked the person he was with what it was and they said it was compressed natural gas and at the time they were hauling the gas to a, um, a coca-cola facility that didn't have a pipe connection. So he said, well, gee, that's that's a pretty good idea. And uh, living in Calgary, he thought, well, there's a lot of opportunity in uh, in Alberta for this type of application. So whether it's the power um, power generation on drill rigs or what, what have you, so to convert those from diesel to natural gas. And starting to look at the numbers, they realized that um, the price of natural gas is relatively low compared to other fuels. So even if you have to effect a transformation, which in our case is compression, trucking, and decompression, you can still do it more cost effectively uh, for the client and reduce the greenhouse gases. So that's that's how the business started. Um, so it started so originally started in Western Canada. Yeah, started in Western Canada, and uh, primary clients were oil and gas companies or companies in the oil and gas sector. And so naturally, a lot of those companies operating in Alberta and Western Canada also operate in Texas and, and uh, some of the southern states. So we kind of grew into the states by following our clients and by our clients requesting that we be there. So uh, today, I would say you know, a large portion of our revenue comes from supporting the oil and gas sector. However, there was a strategic decision made to um, not stop doing that, but start doing other things, working with other sectors to diversify the revenue stream, which, you know... It, in the last month or so, we've realized that, that was a really good idea, and that's why Ontario came into the picture because Ontario is not oil and gas at all. Right. So, uh, so Ontario led the way with the development on the industrial side, and over the last year or so, there's been a, a stronger push to do the same thing across the United States. So the United States is kind of following the model that we've developed here in Ontario to go after whether it's asphalt plants or uh, mine air heating, grain dryers, those types of applications. 
So let's talk about compressed natural gas. Um, maybe give us kind of the definition and, you know, kind of some of the, the supply chain pieces in, in broad strokes for those who, who may not be familiar with it. And I think, you know, we talk about LNG, you know, that's kind of the hot topic. Maybe differentiate from that and talk to us about, you know, the supply chain of, of CNG. So LNG and CNG are both two two methods of transporting natural gas, a sufficient volume to make it worthwhile. Because as we know, natural gas has traditionally been transported by pipeline. So for, on the compressed natural gas side, what we do is we, we accept the gas into large compressors. They're 500 horsepower twin compressors. Um, we go through three, three stages of compression. And at each stage, the gas is cooled because as you compress, it gets very hot. Um, and we compress that gas into tube trailers. So our trailers are basically um, 45 foot trailers with ha that have three, sorry, they have four cylinders inside them. So the cylinders are 40 inches in diameter, 40 feet long, and they contain the basically the energy equivalent of uh, 10,000 liters of diesel, 14,000 liters of propane, or 9,500 cubic meters of natural gas from an energy equivalency. So, uh, our natural gas for us always remains in the gaseous form, and so we truck it that way. When we get to a client site, um, we haul anywhere between 3,000 and 3,800 PSI in our trailers. Mm. So obviously that's too much pressure for a client to use. So when we get to a client site, we have what we've designed in what we call a pressure reduction system. We call them PRS. And basically what that is is a series of boilers that heat glycol. And then a series of heat exchangers, uh, gas to glycol heat exchangers and regulators. So we connect our trailers to these pressure reduction units and we drop the pressure and we regulate it to what the client uh, requests. So um, in doing so, um, basically we, we've taken the gas from a high pressure, reduced it to a low pressure and we can regulate that. Now when we bring our trailers to site, we don't offload into storage tanks, we leave our trailer. Mm. So uh, we connect every trailer to the pressure reduction unit the pressure reduction unit will sense which trailer is full. We'll pull from that one and uh, we'll stop pulling from that trailer when it gets near empty. So we set that switch point uh, based on the client's load and the client's um, pressure uh, demand. And so before the, tra before the PRS stops pulling from a trailer, it establishes the flow from the second trailer. Once that's established, then it shuts off the first trailer and, uh, and then we get the signal to, to move away. Okay. So we come and get that trailer and, and, and uh, we, we refill it. Now from an LNG perspective, LNG basically has to, it's a similar process, but instead of compressing, what they are doing is they're cooling it um, to a point below minus 100 and master the exact number which, when it becomes a liquid. So they haul as a liquid. So the advantage of LNG is that you can haul more of it in the trailer. Um, so if you're hauling long distances and our, our, general cutoff we would say is maybe 450 kilometers so below 450 kilometers from a hub cng tends to be more cost effective if it's further away than that then lng starts to gain that advantage because there's less trucking involved so you'll often see lng for very remote sites or for um shipping via sea so if you're going to fill a tanker you might as well fill it with lng because it's a liquid you can get more of it in a load so uh the two are, are basically the same the same end but it's a different way to get there and and because cng is really just a, a pressure change um you have a certain 
you walked us through on one end, you have, you know, compression equipment. On the other hand, you have, you know, pressure regulation, pressure, you know, reducing equipment, whereas LNG is a phase chain from a gas to a liquid. So, you know, at, at, the, at the risk of stating the obvious, the, the, the equipment on both sides of an LNG supply chain is significantly more complicated and more, you know, expensive, which makes it, which is why I think when you, that's why you have that 450 kilometer breakpoint that, you know, you guys are cost competitive, you know, as long as there's not a lot of trucking, yours, you know, makes more sense. Is, is that, is that directionally right? Yes, directionally right. Yeah. And from the LNG, so it's more capital intensive for the equipment. And it's also more from an operational perspective, uh, each unit you're, that you're converting. So each cubic meter or GJ or whatever, what have you, will cost you more to convert because they are actually converting due to a phase change, whereas we're not. Right, right. So that 450, that 450 kilometer uh, hub uh, point is so interesting. So, you know, you kind of see that as your break point. What, um, what's the Certeris infrastructure like in Ontario or other areas? Like, are you continuing to build out hubs so that you have a greater, like, you know, are there areas on the map that just don't make sense for you to service or what does that whole, uh, you know, piece look like for you? So right now in Ontario, we have the hub in Timmins. Okay. It was our first one. We've opened one in Red Rock, which is uh, near Nipigon. Mm -hmm. um, and then we are in the process of setting up in Southern Ontario. So when I look at those three hubs and I do the distance between the three or yeah, between one and the other, um, there's a bit of an overlap in the circles. So we are, we are kind of filling that gap. Um, so areas for us that it would be a little difficult to serve out of those hubs might be the close to the, let's say close to the Ontario Manitoba border might be a bit of a stretch for us. The, the difference is if we're competing with, with propane, um, it would be difficult. But if we're competing with diesel, it makes it more feasible because there's, there's, a, there's a larger gap in the pricing uh, per energy unit. So even we, even though we might have to charge more for trucking to get to say Kenora, we can still do it more cost effectively than diesel. So if I, I use an example of an asphalt plant, which might be burning fuel oil or diesel, we can go further and still make it worthwhile. Whereas if we're competing against propane for mine air, then we can't go any further than 400 or, or, or so kilometers because then the price of propane, just the, the difference in, in the prices between propane and natural gas isn't that great that you can add that much trucking and still make it work. Okay. So if cost is the sole advantage, then we get to a point where we can't go further. If they are looking for that cleaner burn profile and cost isn't so much of a consideration, then we can go a little bit further. So let's talk about that cleaner burn profile for a minute, because I think that's interesting. And I think what you're saying is, you know, the 450 is a good rule of thumb, but, you know, each case needs to be looked at on a case by case basis for a bunch of reasons. But that cleaner burn profile, talk to me about, you know, how you as Certeris and also your clients are approaching that. How does that decision making happen? How does that comparison, you know, kind of happen? And what, what are some of the driving factors behind that? Well, two of the things are, so because natural gas is roughly 20% cleaner than propane, and also on the carbon tax side, roughly 20% less expensive than propane for carbon tax, those are two of the factors that, that can come into play. I would say that um, while most clients have a, an interest in reducing their carbon footprint, 
it's not always the driving factor. Cost is most always the driving factor, and the environmental side is is the benefit. So I mean, twenty percent is significant, but I mean, from propane to natural gas, would they switch at the same price? Probably not. And I can't speak for all the clients, but that my experience, they probably wouldn't switch for twenty percent mm. because there is a switching cost there as well, right? If you're right. switching fuels, you also have to convert the equipment, so there's a there's an additional startup cost. Um, from the diesel side, um, you're looking at more 35 to 40%, maybe even more, um, like a, on a cleaner, cleaner burn profile. So that's starting to make a lot more sense. And the same applies for the carbon tax. So carbon tax on diesel per energy equivalent to natural gas is substantially higher. So, you know, aside from just the price itself being lower on natural gas, the carbon tax itself is lower as well. So you start seeing a bigger difference there. And, and, and we do have some clients that have switched from, from fuel oil um, to natural gas. And, and the main factor was we need something cleaner. Okay. And uh, so it's, it's really a stacking of, if, I, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's really a stacking of benefits. There's the, you know, apples to apples comparison of the unit of energy cost, dollars per BJ or MMBTU, and you you know, even even the bundling of transportation, you, in some cases you have an advantage, then you layer on top of that the carbon tax impact, and then you have an advantage there certainly. And then the third stack is, as you say, harder to be a driver, but is this benefit? I like the way you've phrased that, but that's the third on the stack is the, the, the carbon emissions benefit, which is different than the carbon tax advantage. Are those kind of the three, stacks of, of value comparison that you do when you're looking at a fuel switching opportunity? Those are the three general ones. But if I give an example of an asphalt plant that's burning fuel oil, fuel oil or waste oil um, is not stable in the sense that depending on where you are in the load and how much it has settled, you're not getting the same heating value from each unit that you're pulling and you're putting through your burner. So when asphalt plants, portable asphalt plants, because most stationary asphalt plants are, are already on gas, but when they start pulling that gas and they start the plant in the morning, they're continuously playing with the settings to get the flame just right. When you come in with natural gas, they set it and they forget it. It's consistent. It's a good heat. Um, and we add to that the advantage that because it is cleaner, their bag houses stay cleaner. So it significantly reduces their maintenance costs. So for a natural plant, we have a, a different set of, you know, of uh, selling points that we go in with. But those are the ones. The other main one for a lot of these, um, like for asphalt plants, for instance, and others that are always monitoring their consumption levels is that we have an electronic monitoring system built into our pressure reduction system. So our clients can access that anytime and see what their current burn rate is, what they burnt yesterday, what they've burnt so far today, and they can pull reports for the last however we've been on their site for. Hmm. So they can also see how much we've got stored on their site. So what, what some of my propane clients tell me is that they're basically uh, dipping a stick in their tanks every day in the winter to make sure that they're not going to run out because you know propane tends to freeze off at minus 40. So mine air goes the most when it's minus 40, so it's the worst time for them. So with us freezing off below minus 100, they don't have that same issue. But the fact that we can tell them exactly how much they have left on site without them having to, to run around the site is another selling factor. Hmm. Cool. And do you see... Are you displacing mostly diesel or, or are you seeing more and more propane displacements as well? Um, in Northern Ontario, uh, the jobs we have, I would say it's probably 80 
80% propane displacement right now and 20% diesel displacement. Okay, cool. And, and part of that is because the clients where we displace propane are larger volume users. Right. Um, and we are, it, it's, it has also has to do with the first contracts we got, which were for power generation and uh, mine air heating. And now we're getting more into asphalt. So I, I think that split is going to change to maybe 60, 40 uh, in, the, in the next year or so. But right now it's primarily propane. And when we first met, uh, I think it was related to a, a power generating project with with Kirkland Lake, which which was a propane switch. It was originally a propane fueled generating station, and um, and now it's compressed natural gas. Um, that that's that's I think that's you guys. Maybe maybe talk a bit about you know that project and what you're doing there, and then kind of I think that's that relationship has grown for you. I think with with that client. Yeah, so that uh, I think those are two one megawatt uh, Waukeshaws. Yeah, um, I believe that's a project that, that you were involved in, and they ran on propane for several months because uh, of the, of our delays getting our equipment in place in Ontario. Okay. Um, so those were converted to natural gas in the fall of 2018, and they've been running on on natural gas since then. So the um, the advantage for them is they can get more um, more power out of it using natural gas because the the heat is different out of the fuels, um, so there's no derate. Um, so that's how that started. So we we ran that uh, cogen uh, well starting in November 2018, and in July of 2019, um, we came to an agreement with Kirkland Lake Gold to convert their mine air heating at their four mines to natural gas. Okay. So we did that over the summer of 2000. Uh, 2019 and so all of this winter and actually I checked this morning on NetFlow and some of them are still burning today so usually they stop burning for mine air heating in uh, April but we've had an odd year so they're still burning today. Huh interesting so I guess that question about um, the power gen piece comes back to the economics we talked about earlier the you know we talked about a, a, a unit of energy comparison as if it was you know um, one GJ or one MMBTU, but does the analysis change at certain kind of flows or volumes? Like, I guess what I'm getting at is if the price point of compressed natural gas delivered to a site is, you know, X dollars a GJ, and it still is an interesting opportunity to a, a developer or a client, if, if the price is, you know, three, four, five dollars a GJ. I'm just making stuff up. But if it makes yeah. sense to do power generation at that fuel price, but you're going to suck a lot of fuel, um, does something change in terms of your infrastructure? Uh, or is 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 a is a price per GJ the same at a low flow versus a high flow? Do you know do you know what I mean there? Like the dynamic I'm trying to get at? Yeah. Yeah. So so yes and no. So generally it is the same. The caveat is that for us to provide you with an all-in price, uh, like a unit price where we include equipment and, and all the processes in that, we need about 3,000 propane liters a day or 2,000 cubic meters a day minimum on average. Okay. So once we hit that threshold, then you know below that, we can't compete uh, against other fuels, but above that, we can. And so let's say we use a... Uh, Say a one megawatt generator uses, I think, 300, uh, probably 300, um, that's 10 GJs an hour or so. 
so that makes sense for us. Um, that's kind of a, si a good size for us. We can do a 500 if it's running most of the time or a 750. Um, where it starts to change is if we get into uh, multiple units. So we can start offering a bit of a bulk buyer's discount because we have more fuel to cover to cover um, the same type of infrastructure's investment. So we, we can, it doesn't change that much because a lot of our costs, so if we, if we break down the price of, um, of compressed natural gas, 65% of it roughly is us. So it's the compression, the trucking, the decompression, and basically the, the rental and everything that goes with it, right? That we build into it. So, um, so we can change that based on how much we, uh, we buy or how much we're producing. But the tolls and the gas cost will pretty much stay the same regardless because the volume changes, the step changes are much bigger than, than they would be otherwise. So I guess what I was maybe thinking of, so there's a bit of a, a volume opportunity, but on the flip side, isn't there a logistical challenge? Like if you're going to, your tanks are only so big, right? If you're going to have a bigger project and you're going to suck really hard, uh, on that fuel tank, you're going to be, you know, daily, or I don't know how, how, what your volume is, but isn't there a logistical piece to, you can only supply, isn't there, is there a top end to your flow that you can provide? With the, um, the hub that with each hub, we are, the numbers change a bit depending, but it's about 25 trailers a day that we can fill. Oh, wow. Okay. So we are limited, but it's a very high, you know, I, I don't, Aside from a two hubs in Texas, I don't think any hub is running at full capacity at this point. And we do that on purpose because we do need that redundancy in case one side goes down or uh, or we have any issues with the line pressure. But we can fill approximately 25 trailers from a hub in a day. Okay, wow. So what would happen is if we had, uh, say, uh, we've worked with um, utilities all over, but there's one we worked with in British Columbia that had an outage and we were trucking Basically, we mobilized compressors specifically for that job. So we were compressing at a remote site, trucking to a pipeline and re-injecting into the pipeline. So this was a pipeline rupture, and so we had to supply incremental capacity in the other line. Hmm. So we bring in um, mobile, we call them mobile compressors, but they require special permits because they're so large. Um, so, so I guess if we got to the maximum point of a hub, then we could always bring in extra capacity with a mobile compressor. Very interesting. And... When you, uh, two, two questions there. First one on the technical side, the, the compression technology, is it, I mean, it's presumably a gas fired compression technology, like you're, you're using the fuel to drive compression? It's electric. Oh, it's electric. Oh, wow. Okay. So you yeah. have to, yeah. So it, how do you handle a remote site like that where you may or may not have electrical service? So our, um, we we could bring in generators. Okay. Yeah, we bring in our own generators, and we could fuel our generators while we're running them. Okay. So we do our portables are um, our gas drive, but our 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 permanent units are electric drive. Gotcha. Okay. So our, so our full compression hub in Timmins is electric drive, and we have backup power on site, natural gas generators. So if the line power drops, then we can run off our own generators, and we also have a mobile compressor set up in Timmins that runs on gas. So We've got several la layers of redundancy right now in place. And that mobile, now I'm just getting really uh, deep into the into the gearhead <laughs> piece. That mobile gas-driven compressor set, is that a recip or a turbine? or what's a recip. Okay, 
Cool. Very cool. Yeah. So switching gears a little bit, but you mentioned it just a, a second ago. Where does what's what's Sertaris's relationship with the established, um, you know, steel in the ground uh, gas utilities? Like, you know, in some ways you're a competitor at a minimum, uh, right? Like, how, how do you guys work that out? Well, you got to think they don't they don't have to compress or or truck or decompress. So there's a definitive cost advantage to going straight to pipe gas. So any client that can get pipe gas would would not come to us. So the the relationship is more of a complementary. So uh, Enbridge's process to build the pipe takes time. It takes a lot of review, engineering, regulatory approvals. So if a client comes on board, uh, builds a new facility, and they call for a gas connection, Oftentimes they can't get that connection for a year, maybe two years out. So we bridge that. We can bring our system in place. We tie into their line that will be feeding the plant. Um, we power their units until until the gas comes in. So it's more of a complementary working relationship. Um, because generally speaking, if you, if you can get pipe gas, you won't go to compress. It's it's more cost effective to go to pipe, right? So so that's kind of where where that works is when it is possible the only time i would see where we would be competitors is if if a client is reluctant to make a long-term investment or sign a long-term agreement with enbridge in order to get a connection or enbridge or fortis or whoever if they're reluctant to sign that agreement maybe they're willing to pay more upfront you know more per unit more higher operating costs to reduce that upfront capital so that might be a situation but in most cases you know people people would go to pipe gas if they could do you see a, a situation where a consumer needs a consumer has an existing Enbridge connection or, or any utility for that matter, uh, but can't get either flow or pressure from them? Do you see that as an opportunity where you guys yep. could supply that? Yeah. Yeah. So we have an agricultural operation in non, in southern Ontario that we're fueling now. And it has a pipe connection, but they've recently expanded and put a new dryer in. And so the pipe connection can't supply that load most of the time. So we are set up, we're piped into that same connection and uh, basically a regular regulator determines when to let our gas flow into the pipe. So when the pressure in the pipe drops, which is indicative of not enough capacity in the pipe, yes, it lets our gas in and then we meter the gas that goes through. Cool. So that is one instance. Uh, there's also a mine here in Northern Ontario that has a natural gas connection for most of its appliances but there isn't enough pressure to do anything with mine air, with mine air heating. So we are connected there separately from them, but it's basically because the pipe, the pipe connection could not meet the demand. Hmm. Now you, you made me think with that agricultural piece. I mean, there's agriculture all over Ontario that's burning a lot of propane, I think. Um, is it just a matter of time, you know, where CNG takes, takes over propane or, or is it, is there still always a, a cost barrier to switch that you know you'll never be able to overcome? I, I don't think cost would be a barrier to switch. When we're looking at a, a typical, if I use a typical dryer, the most it would cost you to convert would be ten thousand. It would likely be more around one thousand to convert it. So that wouldn't be the the, uh, the deciding factor. One of the things that's difficult is that agricultural dryers don't always know how much they're going to be, how much fuel they're going to be using. So some seasons, if they harvest when it's dry, they don't have to dry very much. And so that 
let's say they burn 250,000 liters a fall. Well, that year it might only be 50,000 liters. And that's not, it doesn't make sense for us to go in at that point because by the time we mobilize and, and bring our equipment back, they could have just stayed on propane, right? So we have to look at it on a case-by-case basis. Um, Southern Ontario is fortunate in the sense that they've got a lot more pipe connections than we do here in Northern Ontario. However, there are still those opportunities where, you know, it would make sense to to convert them. So, cool. so I, I think it's possible. Like this year, right now, because of the, the, uh, the crude market uh, tanking, well, propane prices have dropped substantially. The thing with our prices, as I mentioned before, there's a fixed component, which is much larger than the others. So it means you'll have a more stable price over five or six years. But when the price of competitive fuels drops like it does right now, we can't adjust the same way they do. So this is a year where it makes it more difficult to approach a client with a cost savings initiative because the difference isn't as great. Right. Um, but in most cases, so when we go back, because next year the prices are going to be back up where they were, then it starts to make sense again. Hmm. And is this is maybe a, a dumb question, but you know certainly with with liquid fuels like diesel, there's a there's a a shelf life or a maintenance component that that doesn't exist with CNG, right? Like it's put it in there, hold it, and it's good for until you use it, right? That's correct. So we don't we don't vent any gas. It, it stays inside the trailer as long as it's there. Um, but we wouldn't leave. Let's say we're working with an agricultural facility. Well, we know where they're when their drying season ends we remove our trailers when the drying season ends. Okay. And so there's no fuel stored on site. Um, and when they are using it, well, every day or every two days, we're pulling that trailer out. So what ends up happening is when we need to do our preventive maintenance on these trailers or our safety checks, we do it when they're not on site. And we just replace it with a trailer that's already been uh, updated. So there's no, um, the client has no uh, maintenance to do on our equipment, have no, nothing to worry about. Um, so, so there's that advantage. And, and when we look at other fuels, when propane, if you have a, a leak in propane, propane is, is, is more dense. It's, it's heavier than air. So it tends to linger around, which causes a, a bit of a safety consideration because you don't really know if it's gone yet. Uh, diesel, if it leaks, it's liquid. If it, you know, it contaminates the soil, which is a concern for everybody, especially agricultural operations. With us, if there is a leak, it's lighter than air, so it dissipates into the atmosphere. And we don't say that that's a good thing, and it's not, uh, but it doesn't contaminate the soil or cause a safety risk. Right, right. So there's this, uh, yeah, and, and uh, particularly in agriculture where, you know, who knows, who knows, um, you know, what's, uh, what's you know, circulating around, um, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that's, that's important, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, and all, because your gas is all, pipeline it has mercaptan in it right like it's 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 scented gas right it's scented gas so our compressors are equipped to inject mercaptan into the gas oh but uh, for our connections in ontario uh, we're getting odorized gas already right on um what um are you doing anything with uh other other types of fuels like i i think somebody mentioned something about you guys doing something with flare gas or uh, are, you, are you doing, is it just pipeline quality gas or are you doing other stuff as well? Well, so we do a uh, flare capture for some clients where basically we, we set up at their, uh, at their well sites and we capture the natural gas that's coming off the well. And so we capture it, we scrub it, we odorize it, uh, and we truck it to their other site. So in the, in the one case, uh, the client has multiple pads and we truck the gas to where they have a power generation site. So basically, we're using the gas from their well, and we're feeding it back to another site for them. 
Um, so that's one uh, one example of uh, of how we do it. We also do renewable natural gas. So we do have a project in uh, Missouri. Last week they were using approximately, or they were compressing approximately 600 MCF or 600,000 cubic feet, which is uh, wow. my math on that. Wow. 21 million, 21 million cubic meters. And so that's huge. It's a swine farm. Yeah, it's a swine farm. So they are doing their own compression, but we are trucking it and um, we are injecting it into a pipeline. So it gets cleaned, it gets odorized, and it gets injected back into a pipeline. So, um, so do you, what's your role? Are you just doing compression at site and transportation and reinjection? Do you do the, the gas cleanup, the RNG piece as well, or they do that? In, in, for this project, they do it, but we do have equipment where we are scrubbing the gas on our own for uh, the other project that I mentioned, the flare capture one. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, it's, that's so that, that I want to take a bit of a deep dive on both of those. So let's work backwards on the RNG piece. Um, are you seeing more interest? So like, you know, I, I came from, I spent some time in biogas and, and, you know, when you had the, the, there was a couple challenges in biogas. One of it was, you know, getting the, the input, you know, fuel. Um, but you know, often you had, you know, digesters all throughout, or you could have digesters throughout the countryside, but there was no either electrical infrastructure uh, to to do power generation, or as RNG continues to climb in prominence, there was no natural gas infrastructure sufficient to take uh, the the RNG if you could clean it up. Are you seeing uh, more and more inquiries in terms of you know remote digesters making RNG and and having you guys be that virtual pipeline on the basically on the supply side as opposed to on the consumption side. Yeah, we are seeing more. Like I'm not seeing any of this in Ontario. This is happening in other areas, but it is becoming more prominent. And I, I think from a financial perspective, I think it's still more expensive to, it's, it's still more expensive proposition because of some of the factors you mentioned with location and, and, and other things. But I think we're getting better at it. And, and, I think that demand for renewables is, is increasing. So I think we're going to see more of that, whether it, it's a mix of, you know, uh, traditional natural gas with renewables. Uh, but we are definitely going to see a lot more of it. And we are we are working to develop our skills so that we're more able to respond to that demand. And, and does it does an RNG opportunity um, pose any specific challenges because of the compression side, you know, as opposed to if it was an RNG with just direct, gas line injection they would have to do xyz but you know you guys you have to do wxyz because you're compressing it at such a high level or is it is it the the same rng process in both cases it'd still be the same process really you got to clean it you got to scrub it before you can compress it and then you know if they can get it straight to a pipe that would be ultimately better but in some cases it's not like the rng will continue that that one source will continue to provide forever. So sometimes it makes sense to just do it via virtual pipeline. Right, right. Yeah, good point. Good point. Now, back on the flare gas piece, I mean, we've we've dabbled and looked at some flare gas opportunities from a, a, a power gen application where, and I, I must admit I'm a little bit um, skating on the, on the, uh, the nomenclature, but are you, are you taking... Like often I think there's a wellhead and there's flare gas and either it's flared or they, they say, well, let's make power right at the, at, the, at the source. I think what you're saying is you're capturing that and make bringing it to a centralized 
power. But is that what you, are you displacing either flaring it or um, or doing power gen locally? Is that kind of where you guys fit into that? We're, we're displacing flaring and we're displacing diesel. Okay. Because we're capturing that gas to power a generator at the other end that, you know, a pad that's got no electrical connection that would ultimately use either natural gas through us or uh, diesel. Yeah. But in this case, we're using their own natural gas and we're charging them to compress and truck it. I see. Okay. And uh, are you, is this what we call sour gas or that's very different? You're, you're just, you're doing clean gas or? Um, we, we do clean the gas. Oh, you do clean the gas. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you're taking those contaminants and is that a, is that a physical, like, is that a mechanical process? Is it a chemical or is it a, like, what does that cleaning look like in general? Well, that's a little bit beyond, beyond my, uh, <laughs> my knowledge of the chemical or, or mechanical process. Uh, but basically our units are, our mobile units, like, uh, probably the size of an eight by 20 cargo trailer Okay. that, that we pass the gas through it. So right. it's a process, and I I can get you more information on it. But given that I'm not doing a lot of that in Ontario, I have no the need to learn it. <laughs> no, understood. But but the, the important thing is you're taking the gas from the wellhead, and you're cleaning it, compressing it, transporting to where they can use it. You know, as opposed to just flaring it on the site. Exactly. So but natural gas is, is one of those fuels that it's a bit of a nuisance to to drillers. It's not the high value stuff, so they just need to get rid of it. So in this case here, they're basically taking a gas that they see as worthless and they're running their equipment off of it. So it's, it's a really, it's a really interesting win. It's better for the environment and, and it, it saves them money as well. So let's, let's use that environment thing to kind of escalate the, the discussion a little bit or, or go back up to the 30,000 foot view. So where does Paris see, you know, your business, you know, tying into the broader kind of market of, well, not even market forces, but general public opinion forces as it relates to, you know, climate change and, you know, environmental stewardship. Uh, and so, so we've been talking about the technical details of how to move hydrocarbons around, you know, there's, there's other swirling conversations about, um, you know, renewables or, or, you know, electric vehicles or so, how do you, I mean, I, I think I know where you guys fit in, but like, how are you guys looking at that? Are you, are you seeing opposition in the marketplace? Are you, how are you telling your piece of the story in light of that broader context? Um, I mean, it, it depends on the applications, right? When you, when you look at somebody who's like an asphalt plant, anything that burns for, for flame or for heat, you don't have a lot of alternatives there. So, um, we are a lower carbon uh, offering compared to those other fuels. And that's kind of how we position it. Um, you know, in 20 years, are those still going to be around? I, I think they will. Those will still be around. There will be a larger proportion of RNG in that. And if we can get more RNG into asphalt plants and into, you know, mine air heaters, then that's great. Um, but I think from a, from the, the, the public's view of it, uh, there is an incentive there for our clients to, um, maybe look towards more RNG and towards CNG versus the other fuels, but ultimately they, they'll they use whatever makes most sense for them, whether it's financial or, or, uh, or environmental, right? So as long as we can keep, keep meeting their needs and, and providing the cleanest profile available, then, then it speaks well for a company. I mean, we continually adapt. And as we mentioned, the flare capture, which is reducing GHGs, um, 
the RNG, which is reducing the GHGs, basically it's, it's using the, uh, the gas that would otherwise not be used and would be escaping into the atmosphere. We're, we're making use of that. So, so we are adapting. Um, you know, do I see, do I see the, a lot of the applications that we fuel, they can't go to solar or wind or other, other options. It has to be some type of, of burn. So. Yeah, and I 100%, you know, agree with you. I think a, a lot of what gets lost in the in the public discourse is, you know, um things like you know, all of life is relative, right? So what you're doing is you're helping a a, a consumer who needs that high BTU content to make asphalt or to heat a mine um, you know, or to generate power, they, they need that high BTU fuel, you're giving them a cleaner option, right? It's, it's still hydrocarbon based, but you're giving them a cleaner option. And so you're, you're moving that needle, um, in the right direction. And, and then the other piece you exactly. said there, which I think gets lost a lot is, you know, dollars and cents, right? You know, at the end of the day, these operations need to generate value for, for, for shareholders and ultimately for society and, and jobs and, you know, so th- it has to make dollars and cents. And I think that's the neat part of what you guys are doing is you're, you you are able to to do both. You're able to move the needle on a cleaner fuel and do so in some cases or in a lot of cases at a price point that you know, that really makes sense. So, um, yeah, it's 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 an exciting you know business proposition. Uh, I guess that leads me to my next question, which is, you know, is, is this a crowded space? Like, is it are, are there are there a lot of folks out there doing that or are there barriers to entry like these hubs that, you know, make it difficult or, you know, what's the, you know, what's the, the competitive framework like in this space? From, from the CNG perspective, uh, we are by far the largest in North America. Oh. There are a few other smaller players. Um, not, they're not able to necessarily compete at the level we have because they don't have necessarily We've got an engineering team of ten or fifteen people. We've got we've got a lot of uh, of support, right? We've got a transportation group. We've got a safety group, um, a larger operation side. So we are we are still a relatively small company at say three hundred three hundred some odd people and four hundred trailers. But we are, we are by far the largest, and we have the best setup, the best dispatch, and all those all of these things. In my opinion, anyway. So. That that makes it difficult for others to come into the market. Yeah. Um, the fact that we design our own pressure reduction systems, we design our own compression. Um, we have uh, fairly fairly strong agreements with our trailer manufacturers. There's really only two that make these types of trailers, and we have agreements with both of them. So um, it, it's difficult for others to get into that market. When we look at the LNG space, there are um, I would say there are a larger number of LNG companies that are doing different things. Um, are we direct competitors? In some cases we are, um, but in a lot of cases we're, we're doing something a little different or going after different markets. So um, it's, I would say it's not a crowded space. Cool. And uh, do you see a lot of your growth coming from, you know, new, new clients or, or growth within existing client base? Like where do you see that growth coming from? Uh, definitely on the oil and gas side, it's, uh, it's um, having us, having more of our equipment on more sites for that one contractor, for that one driller. So we're seeing expansion within the existing client base. But when we look at the industrial side, it's coming more from bringing new clients on that we hadn't had before. Okay. Um, like I gave the example of Kirkland Lake Gold. So we brought them on with one with one job and it turned into uh, six other drop points. Hmm. And so 
we grow that way. So once we prove ourselves with a client, and that's that's one of the challenges is that when you start talking about compressed natural gas, it's it's just that it's getting that concept across, right? Well, I'm used to propane and I'm used to pipe gas. I don't understand what compressed natural gas is. And then when you try to do a pricing comparison and they're not sure what you know, we call it a propane equivalent liter when we price in the equivalent BTUs to what a liter of propane is. But sometimes that, you know, that little, uh, that discrepancy is, is hard to get across. So um, what we find is we bring clients to an existing site, we bring them to our compression hub, and once they can see the equipment and mm. feel it, they understand basically what it is. They see that it's not a foreign concept. It's a very simple concept, and, and it works, right? So, um, yeah, that's, the, yeah, that, yeah, that see it, touch it, feel it. There's, there is a lot of, you know, truth. That's why car dealerships have so many cars on the lot, right? You want to go and you want to see it. Um, exactly. Yeah, this is great, Stefan. As we as we come to closure here, are there is there anything else in terms of the CNG space or Certeris that you know we haven't really touched on that you feel that uh, you know our listeners need to need to know about you know you guys and 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 your space in the market and some of the opportunities that are present there. Well, I'd say look if there's any any questions on the, how CNG can be used in your application, whether it's uh, power generation or asphalt plants or or peat shaving or whatever. Uh, send me an email or give me a call. We can definitely have a discussion. Um, we are always looking at new opportunities, and uh, you know, one of our uh, one of our, our core values is customer, customer, customer. And and the reason that is because we'll do whatever it takes to provide the custom solution to the client. So whether that's us managing the conversion at our cost, whether it's you know designing equipment specifically for them, building manifolds, helping them partner with another provider. We'll do whatever we can. So hmm. we're definitely, uh, definitely there. And it, you know, if CNG is not the right option for you, then we'll suggest one that uh, that's not CNG if we have to. So yeah, and and, and that's and I appreciate you you having that customer, customer, customer piece because yeah, you, you're at the end of the day, you're providing a service, right? Yes, it's a it's yeah. a pressed fuel, but ultimately it's a service, right? And if that service is interrupted or not provided in the way that was expected. You know, it's tough, tough, tough way to run a business, right? Whereas you guys have clearly prioritized, um, you know, customer service, and and that that reflects itself. And you you get in to do one opportunity, and it grows into six sites, right? That's a testament to to your customer service for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you you guys have a website? Yeah, it's certaris uh, So s sorry c e r t a r u s dot com. Awesome. And I can be reached by phone at 705-274-5444. Right on. Well, Stefan, thank you so much. This was uh, this was fun. I'm I'm smarter for it, uh, thanks to your tutelage uh, over the last uh, 45 minutes or so. And and uh, yeah, it's it's a good discussion. And I think my hope is that through this discussion, you know, people see CNG as an option, right? I think often in our experience as as power gen developers, we think, oh, there's no pipeline. Well. You know, there's no there's no project, but you guys have at least in my thinking, kind of taken that hurdle down, or at least said, hey, you know, let's not let's not give up, let's keep trying, and you guys uh, you guys provide that. So, uh, thank you for joining the Great. podcast. It was good to, to to finally meet you and and get to know you and your business a little better. Uh, real real pleasure to have you. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate the opportunity. And uh, once these restrictions are lifted, I welcome you to visit our our compression hubs and uh, some of our client sites. Yeah, that, no, I'm definitely going to take you up on that uh, for sure. That would be fun. 
Well, thank you for listening to this episode of Energy Radio. This was episode 29 with Stefan Gallant of Sir Terrace. Thank you to Mark Charbonneau behind the glass and Lisa Barber, our executive producer. My name is Matt Lensink. And until next time, uh, make sure you uh, use your energy wisely. Have a great day.